It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. John David Mann, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. I'm thrilled. Can't wait. John David Mann, it is good to see your face after all these months of planning and preparation, sir. (laughs) I know. We really did work hard at this. We were determined. Nothing would stop us. Well, they say some of the greatest relationships or outcomes come from adversity early on, and, and maybe that's what this is all about. I'd really love to start with something that came to mind just this morning, actually, which I thought was pretty hilarious. Has anyone ever recommended to you a book to read that you wrote? (laughs) Amazon does this to me a lot. (laughs) I got an email today. I got an email today. And this is probably the fifth time they said, we think you might like to try this book. It's a thriller called Steel Fear. It's coming out in two and a half months. You should try it. And it's like, yeah, thank you very much. And I, I'm constantly getting recommendations from Amazon for books that um, I, I know I would enjoy reading because I have read them before I wrote them. Um, but I don't think I've ever had that. That would be fun for someone to say, hey, you should read The Go-Giver. You'd enjoy that book. <laughs> I hope it happens to me one day. I think it's yes. the ultimate form of flattery, do you think? I'll tell you one thing. My wife and I were traveling one year. We went to Arizona. We went to Sedona, Arizona, a place that we'd heard a lot about, never been before. And she went out. I was in my room, my hotel room writing, and she went out with a real estate agent looking at places. It's what she likes to do when we travel. And they took it to a really nice place up a mountain, and they went inside. And on the bedroom, bedstand table, there was my book. And that that's, was- pre- that's pretty cool. And which book that's, are you talking you know, about? Arrived. Which book are you talking about, John? Because you've written a lot of books. Yes. Uh, it's about 30 at this point. Uh, that was The Go-Giver. Which up to this point, up until right now, as we're speaking, is probably the most well-known book that I've had a part in. I say it that way because three months from now, four months from now, maybe that will have changed. Uh, the next book might be more well-known, but we'll see. We'll see. It was The Go-Giver. <clears throat> Well, first things first, John, congratulations on The Go-Giver. It is a wonderful book, uh, co-written with Bob Berg, who's been a guest on the podcast as well, and his generosity has been just mind-blowing as well. So you've improved many people's lives through me recommending the book to other people in that process. So I can only imagine, because you've sold a million-plus copies of that book at least by now from the last count. Is that right? Yeah, and- Yes. And Bob, you said the right word, generosity. Bob is such a generous soul. And I, you know, some famous people are different when you get them alone than than their public persona. Bob is 
absolutely the same person in, in private that he is in public. He's he is what you see is what you get, and it's been delightful working with him because we've done you know, four books together now, and, and when you write a book together, it's an entrepreneurial project. You're not just you know the, the, the reading public sees the book on the page. What they don't see is the business that's involved and all of the machinations that's involved in the production, the distribution, the dealing with the marketing. And, and over the years, you know, we've been business partners, basically, um, very close for, for well over a decade. It's, you know, it's been one of the greatest working relationships of my life. So it just everything about the Go-Giver from start to finish has been just a, a delightful experience. Well, I'm not a religious man, John, but I'm very spiritual and learning about how the go-giver actually came to light and, and saw the light of day, rather, is yeah. spine-tingling spine tingling good. I think I just made up a word there. Put that in your thesaurus. <laughs> and I'm yes. curious to know if you're happy to share that background story with us because it's brilliant. Well, sh sure, sure. I mean, um, it's, it, I, I love to. It's, uh, the, the, the bottom line of it is that, uh, as I like to say, Bob Berg ruined my career. <laughs> and um, for which I will be forever grateful. So how that happened was my plan, you know how the expression man plans and God laughs, right? You've heard this. So my plan was to become a screenwriter. I was on my way to Hollywood. I was writing screenplays, studying screenplays, I'd work with uh, some Hollywood coaches and that was you know, and that was my plan, it was my deal. I've done a lot of different careers. I've been through a lot of different fields in my life and at that point, that's what I wanted to do. So uh, I'd, I'd done a lot of editing and a bunch of ghostwriting at that point. Um, I was not a published author, but I'd, I'd been around the written word a lot. And I'd edited some stuff to Bob's. And Bob approached me about this idea he had for a book. He says, I got this idea for a book. I don't want you to edit this. This is different. This isn't like endless referrals, his sales book that I helped edit. He said, this is like, this is a book that I can't write. This is not my kind of book to write. I need you to write it with me. Um, so here's the idea. And he told me the idea. It's going to be called The Go-Giver. And the idea is, you know, you put other people's interests first. It's kind of the opposite of The Go-Getter. Or it's, it's like a, a cognitive dissonance with Go-Getter. And he told me the basic, what he had in mind is the basic setup of the story. And I was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't see it. I'm not sure. I just didn't, I didn't know if it was really going to work. I don't know why. But I told my fiance at the time, I said, you know, it's Bob. And Bob is a good friend. I love Bob. So because it was him, I, I figured I had to take a look. And so you know, we spent a day together and chatted about it. And I went back home to Massachusetts and I doodled around for, a, I had a maybe a week of free time after the new year. And I started playing with the idea. And I, I wrote a draft of a chapter. It's the chapter where Deborah Davenport is giving a talk at the auditorium. And uh, I got to tell you, the moment I started writing it, I was like, this works. This is cool. This is like coming to life. Uh, like sparks shooting out of my fingers. This is hot. I love it. I love it. So I did a chapter. I sent it off to Bob and said, what do you think? And he said, what do I think? I love it. So we went back and forth like that. I drafted stuff, shot it off to him. He made comments. He made suggestions. He shot it back to me. We had a draft in about six weeks. Um, we took it to a, well, I sent it to a, a, um, a literary agent that I knew through a friend of a friend. It was a long, circuitous route. That's also a fun story. Because is this it's Gary? One of those is this totally Gary? Gary, yes. 
my friend Gary, who had asked me to write a book for him. So I, he's, I said that I would write the, I would write the book proposal for him if he would introduce me to his agent. Because I, what do I know about agents? I hadn't published in New York. I wasn't a published author. I didn't have an agent. I didn't know anything about this business. The book with Gary never happened. Um, he, we wrote the proposal. It was it was fantastic. He, the agent loved it. She took it to New York. Nobody was interested. Nothing happened. Months went by. And finally, I said, say, Gary, remember how you said you'd introduce me to your agent? Can you do that? So he said, sure. He gave me your email. And I sent the manuscript for the go-giver to her. And at that point, Gary disappeared. And this was 2006, 2005. And I, I've never seen him again. Um, I lost touch with him. I've emailed him. I've put out Google searches. I've sent out smoke signals. I've told this story many times on podcasts. Everybody out there, if you know Gary, tell him to, <laughs> tell him to get in touch. I, I think at this point, maybe he was a figment of my imagination or possibly a <laughs> spiritual being. You know, celestial orb that was dropped down in human form. Anyway, so uh, the agent loved the book and took it. And uh, she said, it's great. We'd like to represent it. It needs a little work. And that little work turned out to be months of complete ripping it to shreds and rewriting it. Um, in my book, I just put out a book called How to Write Good. Or Gooder. And, or at least Gooder. Exactly. How to write good, or at least gooder. And in one chapter of the book, I take the original draft of The Go-Giver that I gave that my, our agent and show it to you side by side with the final published chapter and explain all of the stuff we did to get from here to there. Because honestly, the first draft was, was crap. I mean, it was pretty garbagey. It was like, it was awful. If, if they'd published that, you know, but, but, um, but the, the finished story was in there. I mean, it was awful, but, you know, but it had something in, in there that our agent could see. So we reworked it. She sent it to New York and it was turned down and turned down and rejected and rejected. And it ended up being rejected 22 times. Wow. And then we, we completely reworked it again and then took it back. And eventually tw number 23 took it and, uh, and boom, it was a bestseller immediately. And it's out in uh, three to 30 languages now. You know, a million copies, 30 languages all over the world. Over a decade later, it's selling better now than it was a decade ago. So something clicked, something worked, but it was a it was a long, hard road to get there. Well, it's such a wonderful story, and it's such a uh, for a number of reasons. But just the the perseverance and the resilience component to it, I think anyone could draw upon that in any area of their life. Which certainly, personally, I find it really inspiring. And as someone who wrote his first book during lockdown last year, inspired by uh, the wonderful Les Brown, who I had as a guest of the podcast, who gave me the blueprint mm. for the book. It's not published yet. I'm going through the re-editing, rewriting part. Yeah. And as someone who's never written anything more than some stand-up comedy for my own amateur attempt uh, a few years ago, uh, it's been one of the most cathartic, enjoyable, challenging, mind-blowing experiences ever. Yeah. So I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another another lesson that I took from that experience. I mean, and there's the obvious thing, which is never give up, be persistent, persevere. I love that moral. Everybody loves that moral. 
It reminds us of stories we've heard about, you know, chicken soup for the soul, Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken, all these stories about people who went up against impossible odds and got rejected and persevered and they eventually won. Fantastic. But there's a different moral in the story for me, which is if the first publisher had said yes, or if the fourth or, or the eighth publisher had said yes, you would have never heard of the book. And nobody watching this show, I wouldn't be on this show. Um, the book would never have gone. It might have sold a couple thousand copies and gone. And that would be the end of that. Um, because they were right to reject it because it wasn't ready. And, you know, what I got from that was, yes, you got to believe in your dreams. Yes, you've got to believe in yourself. And there are other people out there in the world who know something you don't know. Um, and there are people who can look at what your idea is, whether it's for a book or for a business or for, you know, anything really. Look at your endeavor and say, yes, that's got potential. But let me let me give you some suggestions. And if we hadn't been open to that, and if our agent hadn't been willing to to hang in there with us, go through the rewrite and take it back again, then you know, then it never would have happened. It never it would have been a diamond in the rough that would have never gotten seen. So great. And it uh, was awarded the Evergreen Medal for its contribution to positive global change as well, which, <laughs> like, that's yeah. the whole point of, of putting this kind of content out, really, isn't it? Like, you want to affect change on a global it scale. Is. That is what it is. And the, the cool thing about that award for me was that we, we were given that award a year, uh, a decade, sorry, after the book came out. I mean, uh, more than a decade. The book came out in 2008, and this award was in 2017. So basically, it was a decade. Um, you know, you get awards when the, when the book's published, but to get an award a decade later means that the book has struck a nerve, and it keeps it keeps doing it, keeps lasting. So that's really, really gratifying. It's incredibly rewarding. Well, it's it's won a number of other awards as well. I mean, you don't really need my endorsement to go and read it. It is a phenomenal book. And and the other um, books in the series are, uh, I haven't got through all of them, but I've read a couple more and uh, as powerful in their own manner. One thing that struck me yesterday, John, was my very first in-person keynote presentation in front of a group of bankers. Yeah. wasn't a huge group. It was about 25 people. And I've been living in this bubble for the last year or so, right, because I've been interviewing some of the most fascinating, talented, interesting people on the, on the globe, you know, yourself included, best-selling authors. And when I was sharing my keynote and using anecdotes and sharing quotes, I was astounded to know that no one had heard of the Go-Giver, <laughs> or Bob Berg, or John David Mann. I I was astounded to, to learn that no one had heard of Zig Ziglar, no one had heard of Les Brown, and no one had heard of Brene Brown. And I was like, it was such, what? An, it was such an amazing <laughs> lesson because, sorry, one person and his wife had studied uh, positive psychology and that's how she'd heard of her. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. I was like, this, this has made it so much more important for me to continue – my, my path of getting this message out there because yeah. I was sharing quotes like, you know, you can get whatever you want in life as long as you help enough other people get what they want and people are going, it's <laughs> <laughs> like I felt what, like what the coming in crying. Where did you come up with that idea? <laughs> I was really attributing. I was, I was attributing, Zig, don't worry. There's a couple oh, there that might be a bit ambiguous, but um, 
isn't that just so mind blowing in you know a yeah. modern audience? I know it, it's true. It's true, and you're right. It's like we are in a bubble, and forget that COVID nineteen. I mean, we're just in a, in a bubble anyway, um, because because yeah, we we have this experience with books like this, with thinking like this, and ideas like this, but. But it's, you know, it's a, it is a big world out there. Oh, I'll tell you, one of the most gratifying things about The Go-Giver for me has, and Bob too, I know, has been, we get a lot of people who come up to us and say, you know, I, I don't read books. You got to understand, I haven't read a book since college, or I haven't read a book since high school. Um, but I read your book. I read it in a weekend. And they say that with great pride. And I love that. I mean, I live in books. I, my world is books. I read books. I write books. I market books. It's it's my world. So I love readers. I love people who read a lot of books. But there's a lot of people who don't read books, and to be able to reach those people uh, with the books, you know, that that's thin enough and easy enough and digestible enough, accessible enough to you know to work for them. That's just that's just fantastic. You know, Spencer Johnson, who wrote Who Moved My Cheese. When I first saw that book, I kind of looked, I'll be, I'll be truthful, I looked down my nose at it and I, I, I didn't care for it much. And I thought it's a little too simplistic. Then 10 years later, I was working with Spencer Johnson on a project. And then some years after that, uh, I got contacted by his publisher who w- wanted to know if I could complete his sequel to Who Moved My Cheese because he had just died and the book hadn't been written. So I ended up... Uh, ghostwriting slash co-writing the sequel to Who Moved My Cheese um, for Spencer in Spencer's memory and Spencer's honor and in Spencer's idea. And, and in the course of doing that, I took a lot closer look at Who Moved My Cheese, this thing I'd looked down my nose at, and I realized there's real genius in there. Um, and Spencer was a writer of children's books. And I never realized that until I started really studying him. Um, so, you know, Simple ideas, simple truths, simple stories, a lot of power. So great, John. I, I want to do something really unorthodox if you're if you're open to trying something with me. Okay. How would you feel about listening to maybe 60 seconds of the first chapter of the book that I wrote, which hasn't been published yet, and a critiquing or commenting on your initial thoughts on the first 60 seconds. How do you feel about that? Sure. Is that, is that palatable? And I hope I'm I have... always up for anything. <clears throat> All right. I'm going to get stuck into this pretty quick. My God, this is a lot of pressure. I don't know what I've done to myself here, John. This would be a first, yeah. Pressure on you, pressure on me. Hope I say so, nice so things. The, so the book's, called <laughs> Bet, the, book's called, the book's called Bet on You, all right? Because I, I was a degenerate gambler and drinker and drug user and philanderer Excellent. and lots of stuff, right? Wonderful. Okay. Chapter one, delicately nestled deep within the bowels of a semi of a double-storied semi-detached house in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, I caught a glimpse of my future for the very first time. A George Orwell-esque dystopian future I had neither planned for nor desired. Like a never previously captured cat burglar slinking silently into the shadows, My life had slipped into a place so dark that not even ignited magnesium ribbon could penetrate. Lying upright in my bed, my dated laptop aggressively prized open, its luminescence reflecting across my bedroom, akin to the government-installed ultraviolet lights that prevent intravenous drug users finding a vein. Undeterred, I focused my attention towards my next powerful dopamine hit. 
<laughs> that's that's really cool. I love it. I love it. So I'll I'll just I'll just take it fresh. Um, first off, I love it. This is great. Is it, obviously, thank you. It starts, you know, it's what they call in media race, right? In the middle of things. This is classic classic term that means start right in the middle of the story. Don't say I'm about to tell you a story. No, start in the middle of it. That's awesome. So you you put us right there. It's obviously we're in for a ride, and it's going to be it's going to be an enjoyable ride because you're having a good time telling the story. And here's one of the secrets of writing: if you're not having a great time, I mean, yes, there can be struggle and challenge and rewriting and all this stuff, but if you're not fundamentally having a blast, then the reader's never going to enjoy it. You, my friend, are having a ball writing this book. It's really clear. It's really clear. So a couple of of minor critiques that I'd offer. Please go for it. Probably you'll you'll probably want to end up taking out about one word out of every eight or ten. Okay. And just by with chopsticks, picking out a couple of words, finding words that are that are they're perfectly good words. They're even fun, but they're a little un- unnecessary. Um, it's a little over telling the story. Take out one word and suddenly mwah, give you an example. Very first word of the book. Take it out. Nestled in my boom, 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 boom. You take out the word delicately. Of course, the clue is it's an it's an uh, an adverb. Adverbs, words that end with ly, right? Um, famously, adverbs tend to be extraneous because what adverbs usually are doing is they're making sure the reader gets the point that I'm making, even though I've already made it other ways with my nouns and my and my verbs. Um, uh, the laptop is aggressively prized open. Um, prized isn't a word that a lot of people are familiar with, but it's a fantastic word. Yes, you prize it open, but I don't think you need aggressively because prized open already lets us know uh, another adverb. So you'll you'll find words here and there, and, and you know, not some of the more colorful words. Mag- what was the magnesium? What was that deal? There? Ignited magnesium ribbon uh, would illum- that could, would not illuminate. You know, when you yeah. I love that. I wouldn't touch that with a. T- I wouldn't take that out with it. You know, with, with a ten foot pole. Mwah, leave that there. That's that's gorgeous. So all the colorfulness, you want that for sure. But you'll you'll find by selective uh, pulling out of certain words, the thing will get a little tighter, a little sharper, and a little more vivid. Um, but it's like it's already humming and buzzing and full of life. So well done. Well, thank you very much. That's <laughs> ridiculous feedback. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I was getting really nervous, and I don't get nervous a I lot. Can't wait, <laughs> I, I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> well, I've made a commitment to get it out this year, um, and you know, one of the things I love talking about is that, uh, particularly encouraging other people uh, to write a book. Even though mine's not published yet, I've still got it. I've still got it down to thirty thousand words. I did it in six weeks. It exists. It, it exists. exists. Yes. And and I love saying I never finished high school, never went to university, and that's exactly what happened to you. <laughs> that is true. You're right about that. Although I did finish high school in a way. I dropped out of high school in order to work on a project some friends and I had, which was to start a high school. And we did. And the following year, I went to it as a senior in my school. And uh, after I graduated from my school, I went back and I was on the faculty at my school. And I did that for a year, two years, two years maybe. And then I, then I took off and I moved into my girlfriend's dorm at Yale. So I, I went to college. I never actually 
enrolled in college, but I went to college <laughs> for a half a year anyhow. So, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's, that's about as far as it goes. I know what's happened right now, John. People have double tapped back when they're watching the YouTube, so skip back a minute to, to re-listen to what they just heard because we just glossed <laughs> over something there. What in, what in God's green earth happened for you to create your own high school? Ah, well, you know, my, uh, I had some friends, uh, who, and I was one of, one of this group who really wanted to learn stuff. And we were at high schools at public high schools that were pretty, pretty mediocre. Um, and we were like, why are we, why are we wasting our, you know, we had friends, other friends who were saying, you know, why are we in this prison of an educational system? We just want to go hang out, smoke dope and just hang out. That was not us. We didn't just want to go hang out and smoke dope and do nothing. We wanted to do everything. We wanted to learn. We wanted to do. We wanted to experience. We wanted to, you know, get life moving. So we said, what if we had a high school where instead of being required to take these five subjects, we could take 50 subjects and we could take whatever subjects we wanted. And, you know, we could we could find volunteers in the community who would teach us computer science or nutrition or, you know, ancient, uh, you know, Latvian history or whatever it is. Um, study books that were really interesting, you know, and um, yeah, we could read separate piece or we could read Lord of the Flies. But could we also read some Kurt Vonnegut? And could we also read, you know, this kind of thing? So we did that. Um, we created a high school that we had 50 kids. At one point, we had 50 I think 51 kids and 55 course offerings. And uh, I know this because I was in charge of the schedule, which I did on a gigantic piece of, of, of uh, board. And uh, we split up the, the year in five-week terms. And the sixth week was a week of evaluations. Teachers evaluated us. We evaluated the teachers. And it was awesome. And we had, let me tell you, we had uh, graduates from our school. We had no accreditation. We had no official imprimatur. We had, we had nothing. But we had graduates uh, from our school go to Harvard, Yale, state colleges, you know, basically the whole the whole nine yards. Um, so it was it was a blast. It's because we wanted to do something. Charges Inc. Is that what it was called? Changes. Changes. Changes Inc. Changes Inc. It's yes. Changes Inc. Yeah. Inc., which if you think about it, is kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> where where did the funding come for this? How did people like enroll and how was it funded? Some of some of our kids were, um, you know, were from inner city and, and had didn't have two nickels. Um, some of our kids were from wealthier communities and, and their parents who, bless them, had bought into our vision, um, pitched in, paid a, t- paid a tuition. My parents, for example, paid for my tuition and then they, they added an extra tuition for somebody else that we weren't wealthy, but tuition was, you know, it was a thousand dollars a year or something in those days. Of course, this was, this was back in the stone age, you know, 16th century. <laughs> it was actually, yes. How did you know? That's amazing. You must've read my story. In the 1970s. Uh, so dates, but yeah, so we had, we had parents who chipped into a scholarship fund and, and um, the teachers all lived in the building, that was the school. It was a huge Victorian house in a, in a kind of not so great community, so it wasn't that expensive. Yeah, it was amazing. This is, this is so hilarious. I, uh, I've i read about this. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about it in more detail. 
Um, I didn't like high school, so I just wouldn't credit my own high school. I mean, you're going to be destined for great things, John, aren't you? Like, if that's the kind of high school shenanigans. Or at least for things. At least for things. You're not going to be destined for things. And that was the thing. (laughs) We wanted to do something, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've always had that. I've always wanted to, you know, just get stuff done. Well, one thing I I really want to explore with you is your your mum and dad, who have both since passed away, uh, your, your mum more than a decade ago, I think, or no longer actually, um, never got a chance to see the success of Go-Giver. W- when did your father pass away? Um, in 96. I say even so, longer. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's my mom. I'm, my dad is 2006. 2006. So my, dad, my dad died just before the Go-Giver came out, a couple of years before the Go-Giver came out. Um, he knew Anna, my wife, but, but I've been married three times. I am now married the third time. And I like to say the first two times I got up to, I got up to plate and struck out. Uh, the, they didn't work out so well. A good try. And the third time I knocked it out of the park. Uh, my father did know my wife, Anna. Excellent name, as you know. Great um, name. But he never, got, he never got to see the books. I, happily, I have an older brother who has gotten to read all the books and is one of my biggest fans, and that's just been fantastic. But yeah, my parents—they just—they just—they—they uh, they did what they did. They built what they built in me, and then they were gone before before this particular phase happened. Well, they were German descendant. The, the my first father. Gener- your father was my, my father. My mom was long, you know, long ways American, but yeah. What what impact did they have on you in your childhood? You know, um, Bob Berg and I share uh, a lot of similar values, even though we're very different people and very different experience sets. Uh, but we have a lot of similar values, and it comes from our parents. Uh, my parents were amazing. They, um, my parents did for me what parents ought to do for their kids. And it doesn't always happen. And when it doesn't happen, if you're a kid who was who, if you grew up as a kid who didn't have parents who completely believed in you and supported you no matter what, and built this unshakable faith in yourself, uh, uh, if you didn't have that, then as an adult, you need to build it into yourself, which is doable. You know, there you go. Yeah, you have to build it into yourself. But my parents did that. My mom was was the person who. You might know the story since you've clearly done some background here. Um, when we, I was 13 years old, she was a teacher of mythology, of Greek mythology and history. And she was taking a group of school children to Greece to perform Prometheus Bound, uh, you know, 2000, 3,000-year-old play in the original theater where it was first premiered when he wrote it in northern Greece, I mean, Kalambaka. And I was going to be one of those kids. So she wanted to have eight of the choruses of the, of the play set to music. And she said to me, would you, would you do that? And I was like, well, I, I, I'm a 13 year old kid. I, I can't set like Aeschylus to, to music. I don't know. How to. She said, sure you can. And I believed her. And so I did. And, you know, I won an award for the music. And I, when she told me I could do stuff, I believed her. So by the time I was 17, four years later, and we decided to start a high school, she was like, cool, I'm there. Of course you can. Of course you can. So that's my mom. My 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 father. Um, what I got from him was he was the go giver incarnate. He was the one of the most generous, gentlest, sweetest gentleman. Uh, very old world guy. Uh, and so I, you know, it was it was just he was a great person to to grow up with. 
It's so great. It's not often I get a, uh, to have conversations with people talking about their parents so lovingly, John, and because and, a lot of the content that we uh, talk on this on this podcast yes. um, involves my journey as a child of divorce, right? Uh, which yeah. is you know my superpower now, and and I've let that go. I've forgiven both my parents and understand that they've done the best they could with the tools they had available. And I know from the first two marriages that you've had, you had children at least from one of those, and you didn't get a chance to be with them as much as you as you have liked, and the impact that that had on the relationship yeah. that you had with your kids. How has that yeah. improved itself or not over the last decade or so? It has improved in some ways, but not, you know, not entirely, not in every way. Let me put it that way. So, yeah, I've had four, I've had uh, five kids th- through two marriages, one of whom died early on. So we had that loss um, and two kids from one marriage, two kids from another marriage and all four totally different individuals, like from four different planets in the in the in the galaxy. You know, <laughs> How did that happen? But um but it hasn't been easy. Some some relationships and some of those four are better than others. Um, some have have improved drastically, as you say, in the last ten years. But for me, it's really been a, a lesson that, you know, I I don't know what I I don't know if I can use curse words in this podcast, but let's just say stuff stuff happens. You know, shit happens. It's like it, it's there are difficult circumstances that you can't necessarily fix to perfection, but you can address them the best you can and go with that, you know, just go with that. It's like, you are the best husband you can be. You're the best father you can be. You're the best author, writer, you know, or best speaker. You can be, as you say, with what you got at the moment, like your parents, you sort of have to also forgive yourself. I'm speaking of of me here, not you, but of all of us, you know, we reach a certain point where you see how you could do so much better in certain realms, or you wish you could do so much better. You kind of have to forgive yourself and acknowledge that I have the very best of intentions and I'm an imperfect being. And with, with that, as an imperfect being, how can I make a perfect contribution? It's all you can do. It's, it's beautiful, John. And something else that happened at that, that presentation yesterday, I was talking about, Boundary setting, and it included yes. boundary setting to the point where I've had to exclude family members. You know, keep them at arm's length. And this one guy, he was uh, in his early fifties. He he uh, snapped. Uh, he disagreed with me. He disagreed that you can cut people out of your your life. And it was really interesting. Some of the other team members actually uh, piped up at the other end of the room and. Not not jumped on board with me, but I think agreed. And I'm just curious to know your thoughts on on that component. Yeah, I mean, it, it, my I, I agree with you. I think I didn't hear you know I wasn't there for what you said, but my sense is that I agree completely with you. It isn't like you're cutting them out of existence. Um, I I might you know disagree if you wanted to shoot them and kill them. Uh, yes, that's you know that's not what you're talking about. <laughs> you're not trying to erase them from existence. What you're trying to do is establish a boundary in your own life so that you can function um, to your best capacity. Now, you know, there's sort of there's sort of a a give and take relationship that you have with your universe, which includes people and circumstances. 
there are things you can control and things you can't control. Um, and I think sometimes in order to be the best contribution that you can be to the world around you, to your universe, you've got to draw some boundaries. You know, and part of those boundaries can be about time, like not now, or I can't do that. I can do this much, but I can't do that. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm dealing with this all the time because I get people who write to me and, and want to know if I'd give them advice, assistance, help, opinions, et cetera, et cetera, about books. And I want to do it all. I can't do it all. I do a lot, though. <laughs> um, but, you know, here's an example of a boundary for me. People constantly uh, write to me and say, would, would, can I just get a phone call with you? And my answer is, ah, no, <laughs> you can't. And here's why. And bless you, I'll be compassionate about this, but a phone call, even if it's a short one, the, the so-called just 15 minutes, which doesn't exist, it's never just 15 minutes, it's always like 45, but even a short phone call, it, it knocks my attention span off to the, to the degree that my writing day is wrecked. I can't afford for my writing day to get wrecked. The book I'm writing is too important. I don't mean to the world. I mean to my publisher, to my agent, to me, to my co-author. I got to get, that's that's my focus. I got to get that book done. So here's what I can do. I can exchange emails with you, you know, till the cows come home. I can, I can do that easily. It doesn't throw me off my game. So I'm constantly in the position of telling people, I can't do what you're asking. Here's what I can do. I can do that much and and. That'll have to do it. That'll have to suffice. And it almost always works. I had one guy, I was thinking about this the other day. I had an author who was, I was corresponding with. I liked his book and uh, he liked my book. And he wanted to get in the phone with me and tell me about something that had happened with his manuscript. And I said, my thing, dude, I can't do that right now. It's like, let's just do an email. And he couldn't handle that. He said, I'll tell you what, I won't tell you what happened. It's a really great punchline to my story. I'll tell you when you call me. That was eight years ago. He hasn't told me yet. <laughs> Guess I'll never know what happened. Oh, well. <laughs> it's a, that's a, a perspective I've never looked at, John, because I, I love ringing up and calling people, uh, particularly to invite them on as a guest to the podcast. And it's, it's, sure. uh, it's incredibly effective. And a lot of people have said to me, hey, thank you for ringing. Like, you know, like I appreciate the, the balls, right? Yes. But yes. I, I, I didn't ever take into consideration your point of view. And so now it's given me a newfound appreciation. Thankfully, I'm a bit more gracious than this other joker. <laughs> so I don't mind. <laughs> it's just that I don't enjoy writing emails as much because I, I can't articulate myself as succinctly as I can in person, right? And, um, and, and having said that, you know, it, it does go both ways. I worked with a, with a, a guy for a while. I worked at a, at a, in a business where there was a guy there who was he who owned the business. And he hated writing emails. It, it, like, it wasn't his thing. And he liked to process by talking out loud. And my wife liked to process by talking. I, I understand that completely. So he was a, he was a verbal processor. Um, I like talking. I mean, you and I are spending a delightful hour right now, right? I love doing this, but I've already told, told you the issue I have with it. With the phone, I get on the phone, it, you know, it, it wrecks my whole morning um, in terms of writing. And he and I were like this for a year. I mean, I was like to my wife, why won't he answer my emails? And I'm sure he was saying to his, his wife, why won't he answer my phone calls? And, uh, and finally, we, finally, I said, you know, I got to drop this. I got to drop this and just get in the phone with him. And just hang out. And, you know, that I did. It was worth it because 
we've all got our own styles. We've all got our own restrictions and limitations. My mom hated being on the phone. I think that's where I got it. My ah. father could talk on the phone all day long. So yeah, yeah, we're all different. It's so fascinating. It really is. I want to know more about this uh, the steel fear and the process of <laughs> writing a fiction book versus all the other work that you've done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say is this is you know on the face of it, this is a complete departure for me because what have I been doing for for a decade and a half? Writing parables about lovely things, right? About giving, about being generous, about leadership, about you know. Uh, uh, so the Go Giver books, and I've done a lot of memoirs of business leaders and memoirs of of uh, sort of rags to riches stories and so forth. And so all of a sudden, I'm writing a crime novel about a disgraced Navy SEAL who's stalking a serial killer on an aircraft carrier in the midst of the Pacific Ocean. What? I mean, <laughs> uh, so, you know, it seems like a complete departure. For me, it just feels like the next logical step in, in what I'm doing. Um, yes, it's a thriller. I wrote it with my Navy SEAL buddy, Brandon Webb. We've written five other books, all nonfiction. I wrote his memoir with him. Um, the Red Circle? That, that, that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's how we got connected. You got that little little red circle. We wrote that we wrote that together, and, and it came out in 2012, I guess. And and um, and that book did really well. It's still doing really well today. I really, it's actually I really enjoyed that book because it was completely outside my experience. I don't have any military background, um, and I'm you know I'm not a, a gun a big gun enthusiast. I've shot a few guns, but not, you know nothing much. And here I am writing the memoir of a freaking Navy SEAL sniper. Right, <laughs> it's what he is when he was. Um, so that was wild. I had to learn a whole foreign world, which I think is an awesome experience. I think every actor uh, does that, uh, and you know, every writer should do it. It's they say write what you know. Well, yeah, okay, but it's a lot more interesting to write what you have no idea of, because you have to learn it. And uh, so there was that book, and then we wrote, we went on to write a bunch more sort of memoir uh, books about snipers, military snipers, and then we wrote some business books. Total Focus and Mastering Fear, books that sort of applied Navy SEAL principles to the world of business and civilian life. And then we wrote this thriller. And, you know, it's we sold it in a two-book deal. I'm already halfway through writing the sequel, uh, which we've got a publication date for already. It's going to be a series. It's the start of a, of a, of a new thriller series. Um, one of the, I guess, Robert Crace, who wrote the Elvis Cole novels, he's like... Used to write for Man from Uncle, this guy. I mean, this ah. guy is, is one of the big TV writers for decades, and he's one of the top crime writers. And he he wrote an endorsement and said, Finn, our hero, is the next um, thriller superstar. So that's pretty that's a pretty sweet endorsement. Maybe you might get that manus the film script gig. Off the back yeah, of this. yeah. Well, the truth is it's it's in development right now as a TV series, as a streaming TV series. Any idea who the lead will be, actor-wise? No, 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 it's not. It's not in casting at all. It's, it's still in. It's still in story development, and uh, we don't have a. You know, a pilot has not been shot, so it's still in this dreaded place that Hollywood calls in development, which could mean it will never be seen again, <laughs> or it could mean in six months they'll be shooting. You know, you just don't know. 
we just don't know. But it's it's in development as a streaming TV series. We shall see. That's so exciting, and and uh, endorsed by the Jack Reacher author, Lee Child. Name? Yeah, Lee Child. Yes, his real name is Jim Grant, but Lee Child. Um, yeah, Lee Child sa- said it is a um, an instant classic, maybe an instant legend. Wow! I'll tell you what. The day I got that email from my editor, um, the editor emailed me one morning and said, we got an endorsement from Lee Child, and here's what he said. And she read me his whole email. And I took it to my wife and my phone, and I said, and I showed her, I said, she had to read it because I, I couldn't read it. I, I literally couldn't do it. It was pretty exciting. Yeah, so he, he's a very, very generous man. And he gave us that beautiful endorsement, which has opened a lot of doors. And we're excited about that. I'm not shocked. I mean, it, you're the uh, the go giver was endorsed by uh, we had the forward by um, Ariana Huffington, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, um, yes, that was pretty sweet. Is is uh, now I've experienced a little bit of this to the extent that I've had the opportunity to to interview, obviously people like Bob, uh, you know, Dr. John Gray. Dr. Robert yes. Glover, who wrote a book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. I don't know if you know that book as well. And Les Brown, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> you know, how could I <laughs> forget Les Brown, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and other people like Keith Abraham. But uh, I've had opportunities to read them, sections of the book, not, not all of them, but some of them, and <sighs> to get that kind of feedback for such a raw uh, scribblings, for lack of a better word, is so empowering. So I can only imagine what it's like when you get it when the book's done. You know, this is a weird thing. I, I um, There comes a point for me in every book I, I, I write, and, and usually it's more than one point. It happens many times in the course of the book, but certainly it happens at least a, at least a couple of times where I'm working on the book and I find myself going, this isn't working. I, I just, I don't, I don't know. I just don't know. And, you know, I know there are people maybe who hear me say that and think, yeah, yeah he doesn't really think that. No, I really do. This is, this is, I'm speaking honestly here. Um, my wife and I just wrote a book called The Go-Giver Marriage. It's the next Go-Giver book. It'll come out next year, next March, actually. Um, but, you know, this is the fourth Go-Giver parable. And all, you know, the other three have done okay, all right? So you, you'd think by number four, I'd be going, I got this, no problem. I was not doing that. And, and early on in the book, so help me, I found myself at five o'clock in the morning in front of a blank pad of paper going, I know the others work, but I just, I don't, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think it's going to work. Of course, I hear myself say those words and I've trained myself to immediately translate them. Um, you know, which is, I'll, I'll take that and deflect it and say, I, I'm not seeing yet how this is going to work, but it's going to be fantastic. But I'm not seeing it yet. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see how it's going to work. Um, I speak sort of those words of faith, if you will, uh, into myself, even though I don't believe it yet. Steel fear. I mean, I knew it was, it was, by the time it was done, our agent had read it. We'd had a circle of friends read it. And, you know, the publisher was excited about it and they bought it and they would paid money for it and they wanted a two book deal. So they wanted a sequel. And now there was somebody in Hollywood and said there was Hollywood buzz, but there was still like, yeah, I mean, these guys have liked it so far, but is is it really going to hit a? Is, is it really any? Is it really any good? When Lee Child said that, it's like, okay, that's pretty satisfying. I mean, just like you said, 
it's really nice to get those words of acknowledgement and words of confirmation that you know what you've done that there's some value in it that there's it's there's something real in there so i'm a big fan of generosity in the world of writers i'm so grateful to the writers who've pitched in and given us their endorsements well even your comments on on what I read out earlier have absolutely made my weekend. <laughs> so, like, oh, far whether, out. whether it comes across that or not, like, truly, it's. Uh, I've learned I something about critiquing. Here's something about critiquing is for because I critique writing a lot. It, it could also be true for critiquing, you know, your your son's baseball stance. It's true for critiquing anything, and it's a really simple thing. It's the first thing you do is find what you love in it. Find the thing you love, point that out. And then the, then you can, number two, you can say, and by the way, here's some things I'd, 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 I'd work on. Um, but you can't do it the other way around. At least I can't handle it the other way around. If you say, if you start out saying, if I started out saying, okay, Ditchburn, first off, you're using too many adverbs. Okay, so take out the, take out the delicately and take out the aggressively and take out these few words. But, you know, I like what you're doing. It would it would be like oh, so deflating, right? So, and besides which, that's that's a lie. That's not the truth. The truth is, what grabs you isn't a word that's misplaced. What grabs you is the fire, is the spark. That's true if you're a mentor or for somebody who's starting a business. The first thing you're going to look at is what's the vision of this? Oh my God, that's a great idea for that business. Now, your customer service is a mess. Or you, your people are answering the phone sloppy. You got to fix this. Or you got to dress different. Or you got to fix up your retail. Whatever it is, you don't have a business plan. You need a business plan. But first, you look for what's great. What do I love? And acknowledge that because then we're connected. You know I believe in you. You know that I'm going to be real about whatever comes next. And you know that if I critique something, it's it's because I love you. I I love your idea. I believe in you. And so I have a reason to listen. And that's so important. It's so important to know how to critique other people's stuff. It's it's wonderful advice, John, and that's exactly how you made me feel. Exactly how you made me feel, uplifted. Okay. And I don't even remember any of the, uh, <laughs> the negative stuff. It wasn't even negative. It, it, you know, you talked about um, extracting one word at a time, and and having read, I haven't read all. That's what of, I do with myself. It's what I do with myself. Perfect. Well, the the how to write good, or at least gooder. I've gotten through. Uh, I think about 50%. I've been reading it on an iPad um, and I converted, converted it to iBooks because it's a PDF through available through your website, which we'll get you yes. to share in a minute. It's brilliant, right? And I've already started taking a lot of the words out because I'm not so I don't care that it needs to be five hours long to, to listen there's to. A, there's a ton of examples in the last the last chapter. Yeah, when you get to the last chapter, the very last chapter of the book, there's a ton of examples of my own stuff. And I'll show you how it was, you know, how I made it better, which means it wasn't very good to start with. So the, all I'm do, doing is exactly what I do with my own stuff, and it, it's it's just it's it's the it's the um, it's the craft, not the art. It's the craft part. John, I firmly believe that all the answers to all of life's challenges or problems already exist and are available yes. to us all. Speaking of which, how can people find you and your information? Um, it's my website. Basically, it's the hub of everything I do. My website is simply my name, which is John David Mann, M-A-N-N dot com. 
And on the site, there's you know all my books on the site, my blog. Um, I blog about every two weeks. I'm blogging about Steel Fear these days. And um, yeah, everything's there. So you can also contact me. There's a little you know contact me link. If you push that and you send an email, it actually goes to me. I'm the person who answers it. And, you know, I don't have a staff. It's just me. So <laughs> that's that's where you find me. That's one of the great things about this community and authors is how easily it is to connect with this is the most extraordinary people if you just have the courage to reach out and ask ask for what you uh you know ask for help so that you remain strong not so that you yeah. appear weak and keep asking for it until you get it yeah john this has been nothing short of extraordinary i knew it was going to be good but i didn't realize how do you have any concluding thoughts for our audience today yeah you know I guess, let's see, I'll make them up as I go along. The, you know, the first thought I have is that I know not everyone's path is my path. My path isn't everyone's path. I, I will say about my path that I've been, I feel like I've been kind of fumbling for most of my life towards finding kind of like looking for something in a room when all the lights are switched off. I've been fumbling towards what, what am I here to do? Why am, why am I here? Maybe I didn't always ask that question so existentially, but it's like, what am I doing here? So I've done a lot of different things as careers, um, often fumblingly, but with an intention. And my intention has always been, and I think you touched on this earlier on, my intention has always been to have an impact on millions of people's lives, a positive impact. That's, you know, what, what I love to do, but I just been looking for ways to do that, that work and ways to do that, that, that I can be effective at. So I guess what I what I would want to say is that I I have a belief I do believe that each one of us um, is uniquely here for a particular reason. Um, I have a friend Dan Burris, the futurist, who says that we have many talents but one gift. Uh, I've never examined that enough to know if I if I agree with him or not, but there's a ring to it. There's a ring to it. I do think that every one of us certainly has a path. Um, where that gift might lie, which is there's some way that each one of us has to make a uniquely positive impact in our world so that the world will be a different and better place as a result of our having been here. Um, and the reason I started out saying my path isn't your path is that some people find this early on. And I say, hey, good for you. <laughs> that wasn't me. For me, uh, I have a friend who says that the first million dollars is to blow. And, you know, what he means is that you, you need to have some time to make mistakes if you're an entrepreneur. Um, for me, the first 50 years, you know, was I, maybe not to blow, but let's just say to grow. Uh, the first 50 years was to find my way. Unhappy marriages, unhappy relationships, uh, lots of cool things that happened in my life and that I did, but many of them ended up in failure or, you know, didn't go as far as I wanted them to and hit unexpected brick walls. I went bankrupt once. I had a child die, as I mentioned. I had, you know, all kinds of terrible things happen, but stumblingly toward a place where I, I feel like I'm the happiest person in the world. And, uh, and there's no question for me that right now I am, I am doing what I was put here to do. So I just want to encourage everyone, if, if you haven't found that path, know that it's there and that you're on the trail for it. Be on the trail, be on the hunt for it. Uh, and if you have found that path, enjoy the hell out of it. Ladies and gentlemen, John David Mann.
it's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.